Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Brady Heberlin. Today's show is Without Self and State, Tis the Season for Christian Anarchy. Our music for today's show is by David Bazan. Bazan is the lead singer and creative force behind the band Pedro the Lion. In early 2006, he began performing and recording under his own name. As a songwriter, Bazan is known for first-person narrative lyrics with political and religious themes. This is Hard to Be off of Bazan's 2009 album, Curse Your Branches. It's the holiday season, a time of encounter with religious traditions even for the most secular people. This year, the COVID-19 pandemic and the murder of black men and women by police has highlighted socioeconomic inequity, the violence of the state, and the need for new forms of life that do not rely on police, prisons, and social violence. As we approach Christmas, we're asking ourselves, what can we learn from the branches of Christianity that have imagined non-violent ways of living, ways of living that are based on community care and mutual aid? From the Franciscan monastic tradition to the Christian Anabaptists, Some Christian practices have charted ways of living together that emphasize responsibility and duty to each other and a collective exit from the violence of government and concentrated sovereign power. The work of Italian philosopher and political theologian Giorgio Agamben helps us think through the ways that the rights of some citizens are predicated on the exclusion of other people from access to those rights. Agamben invokes the concept of bare life to describe life that is managed by the state but not granted the full rights associated with citizenship. Bare life belongs to those who are most marginalized. And sometimes, it's precisely in the instances where the state refuses to grant full rights that communities of care and mutual aid form in which people take their lives into their own hands. And now it's hard to be, hard to be, hard to be. A decent human being. In other instances, such as in the Franciscan and Anabaptist traditions, people abdicate themselves of their state-granted rights in order to experiment with forms of life where their ties to each other govern their behaviors and their ways of engaging with shared resources. For hundreds of years, and especially since World War II, the concept of a political community has been dominated by the institution of the nation-state. Throughout the 20th century, the nation-state has been the only conceivable venue for politics, and even the most radical political organizations have oriented themselves toward changing state governments or overthrowing them to create new governments. In either case, the institution of the nation-state is taken for granted. Agamben and the Christian anarchists return to more fundamental questions. What does it mean to live together in a society? How do we form strong communities that are inclusive of the most marginalized people when we live in a fragmented world? Is state enforcement of community ties the only way that diverse groups of people can coexist? And if our current state is not up to this task, does this mean we need a revolution that will create one? Christian anarchists and Agamben both say no. They not only critique the nation-state paradigm, they also endeavor to imagine new forms of community that are not situated in relation to a state. They seek to imagine forms of communal belonging that go beyond the idea of being a citizen, beyond the conversation about state-granted rights. Today, episode producer Nick Bergen talks with Katrina Kniss about her work on Agamben and the Christian anarchist tradition, exploring some of their common themes, such as the need to think beyond revolution, 
and voluntary exile from the state through the abdication of rights. They also discuss how these ideas might help us think through the political turmoil that we have witnessed throughout the past year. Katrina Kniss is a graduate student at Wake Forest University, where she is working on a dual degree in divinity and law. It's hard to be, hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. Now for our show. You're listening to Without Self and State, Tis the Season for Christian Anarchy. In your essay, you find that there's a lot of common ground between the Italian philosopher, theologian, and political theorist, Giorgio Agamben, and um, also the Christian anarchist tradition. So can you just give a little bit of background on what these two schools of thought are and, you know, just your reasons for trying to think them together, you know, what's the same about them, what's different, and what you find interesting in that connection? So just to give a little bit of background about the context that I'm coming from, um, I grew up in the Mennonite tradition, which is part of the Anabaptist lineage. Um, and so I really grew up kind of immersed in these theologies around nonviolence and um, an idea of simple communal living, somewhat of an isolation from the state. And this was always framed in a very apolitical way. Um, so we were discouraged from involving ourselves too much in, in politics and voting and that sort of thing. But when I started undergrad, I was part of the peace studies department, and I began seeing in a lot of ways how this theological viewpoint actually wasn't apolitical, but actually had a lot of um, yeah. political weight behind it as well. So it wasn't until I came across the field of Christian anarchism that I kind of finally had language for what I had seen as the political ramifications of this kind of theological worldview. And so in that time I had, I was drawn to a lot of different fields of thought that decenter the state and the nation state and their and ideas of political community. Um, and so it was around that same time that I came across Agamben's work as well. And I really saw this, this kindredness between um, the two fields of thought that I think brought in a really interesting conversation. Um, so I think they have a similar political project, even though their ontological basis differs a bit. Um, and so um, Agamben is calling into question the idea of sovereignty. And Agamben quotes Carl Schmitt when he's saying that the sovereign is he who decides on the state of exception. Um, so sovereign power can decide when the law is in force and when it can be suspended, where it applies and where it doesn't. And this idea of the sovereign ban is the original political formation. So the law is inherently violent because it's always held up by this threat of being excluded and being abandoned to this place without the law. So for Agamben, the natural ontological state of being is actually anarchic and ungovernable, but this anarchy is controlled by the structures of governmentality as a way to mask this anarchy and to use it for their own purposes and to be able to place the government as the natural order of things. Um, so these managing structures, what Agamba would call the oikonomia, is um, regulatory structures like the police and the law. So Agamba is speaking of and searching for a type of autonomous politics. And this is a politics that's not just in opposition to sovereignty and the state, but actually freed from that relationship altogether. Christian anarchists also see a similar type of political vision, I think. They notice the anarchy and violence behind this veil of sovereignty, um, but their idea of 
their need to remove themselves from that is more based in their biblical exegesis. And so their understanding of the need for a radical adherence to Jesus's example of nonviolence. And so they see the state as inherently violent, but that's because even if we not may not be part of those structures that are explicitly enforcing it, like the police or the military, that by being a citizen of a country, we are giving our consent for others to coerce on our behalf. And so they say that we must refuse to be a, to be a part of this political game at all and to rid the state of its legitimacy in our removal from it. One area where it's really important to bring Agamben into conversation with Christian anarchism is around the idea of sovereignty, because Christian anarchists still hold to this idea of the sovereignty of God over all earthly powers. And so this idea of removing oneself from the power of the sovereign state is more based in the idea of Jesus's primacy over all of the powers. And this can be a tricky situation sometimes because it's easy to conflate obedience with God to obedience to the church. And in the same way that the state can control this anarchy of being, the church can do the same thing and use this obedience to God as a way to kind of control the members of the church and also work for its own political power and gain. And so I think Gagambin gives us really important intervention into Christian anarchist politics by questioning sovereignty itself. And in the same way, the Christian anarchist tradition also provides a really beautiful wealth of examples of communities that have been part of this experiment of creating community and a life outside of the law and what that can look like. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, show producer Nick Bergen asks Katrina Kniss to describe how Christian anarchisms refuse the sovereignty of the state. Together, Nick and Katrina track how the work of Giorgio Agamben and the ethics of Christian anarchism imagines breaking away from symmetric engagement with the state via petitioning and protesting in favor of communal life. Kniss begins by describing the difference between constituting and constituted power, where constituting power is power that is in the process of creation, while constituted power is what Kniss calls power in place. Philosopher Giorgio Agamben argues that both constituting and constituted power are violent because they make and preserve the law itself. A destituent power, Kniss says, is one way we can conceive of terminating our relationship to sovereign powers by making sovereignty and its laws inoperative. But it's not what bearing One of the things that I felt was um, just really tangible in your essay was you kind of like make a parallel between different Christian political movements. Um, you make a parallel between those and um, secular political movements. And you kind of talk about how each of them, there's sort of like two relations to the state. Like on the one hand with Christianity, you have like the pacifist tradition, which is sort of just like, you know, refusing to condone any violent acts that the state does. And then on the other hand, you have um, liberation theology, which is, you know, well-versed in Marxism and is a lot more focused on on seizing state power. And um, it's sort of like the, you know, the classical Marxist communist idea that we think of. And then uh, there's sort of that parallel in like secular traditions where you have Marxism on the one hand, which is you know, focus on overthrowing the state. And then you have, you know, what maybe we would think of as like more peaceful forms of protest where we're like petitioning the state. So with both of these options, you're still defining your position in relation to the state. 
can you just say a little bit more about how like Agamben and the Christian anarchists are both trying to find a new way where we're, you know, just refusing to stay altogether rather than, you know, working through it or in opposition to it? I think it's kind of helpful here to understand um, the conversation that both Agamben and Christian anarchists are having about the way that these two poles are part of the same relationship. To begin, like Agamben enters this conversation um, from a place of understanding the difference between constituting and constituted power. So constituting power is power creating, like in a revolution, whereas constituted power is power in place, like that of the state. And so while some political theory may be asking how we stay in constituting power in a state of maybe perpetual revolution, Agamben still sees both of these as part of the sovereign relationship of power. On one end, it's the violence of lawmaking, and on the other side, the violence of preserving the law. Um, And so Agamben does try to imagine what a third option could look like here apart from the state. And that political move he labels as inoperativity. So if we step down to the ontological level a little bit, um, he's looking at the relationship between potentiality and actuality. And to keep potentiality from slipping into actuality actually rests on the potential not to be what Agamben calls impotentiality. But even here, this is an example of a sovereign ban at work because we're choosing that which is and that which is not, and there's always something excluded. Um, and so this is why we need to be able to think outside the sovereign relation, setting aside even the potential not to be. Agamben points to those, to certain communities that have tried to push the limits of this possibility, but he doesn't necessarily tell us how to do it. Um, he kind of shows us that there have been a lot of attempts, but all of them have kind of ultimately failed. But in looking at those, we can kind of learn something about this relationship between um, potentiality and actuality. But he does bring up this point of the idea of messianic vocation and drawing from the idea of messianic time from Paul in his letters in the New Testament, the idea that the kingdom of God is always already present And this messianic act of redemption is actually the moment where everything is emptied out and nullified. So everything that is, is made as not. So it's this nullification of all being, it's impotentiality that opens up endless possibilities of new formations. Um, So it's not so much concerned with a new world, but rather a new use of what already exists. Um, So we see this as a kind of destituent power, a a different kind of power outside sovereignty altogether that is rendering this relationship of sovereignty inoperative. And Christian anarchists also see revolution and the state as kind of two sides of the same coin and have this radical refusal to take part in any of it. And within the tradition, this third option can go by many different names, um, such as Nonviolence, non-resistance, subversive subjection, which is a term from Jacques but it's this idea of not doing anything other than loving the enemy. So through their biblical interpretation, we can see creative examples of not resisting, but still preserving dignity and humanity. It's time for our first break. This is Foregone Conclusions off of David Bazan's 2004 album, Achilles' Heel, with his band, Pedro the Lion. We'll continue our conversation with Katrina Kniss on Christian anarchism and the work of Giorgio Agamben when Interchange returns. Talk it through. 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We're speaking with Katrina Kniss about Christian anarchism and the work of philosopher and political theologian Giorgio Agamben. Interchange producer Nick Bergen discusses the concept of bare life. Bare life is life without rights granted to it by the state. We can think of bare life as that which is excluded from the political sphere, excluded from property ownership and access to human rights granted by the state. However, the work of Giorgio Agamben posits that voluntarily extricating oneself from the world of state-granted rights, as the Franciscans did, opens the possibility of forms of life with each other and with the world around us that are bound by lived necessity and use. I want to maybe kind of get into, like you said, Agamben, um, one of the sort of frustrating things about his work is that he points to things, but he doesn't always tell you exactly what um, what this looks like. But um, you do mention a couple examples. One, Agamben has a book on the, on monastic orders like the Franciscans. And then um, in the Christian anarchist tradition, you talk about Anabaptists and um, their sort of like political praxis via the state. So yeah, maybe we can start with uh, the Franciscans because one one of the things that I've find most interesting and the way Agamben uses that example is that he talks about how the Franciscans take a vow of poverty, but it's not just material poverty. It's also sort of like a legal poverty or a juridical poverty. They're they're giving up their rights. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and explain like I'm I'm interested in this the messianic idea. Like are they are they sort of saying that the messianic time is now, so we are you know, we don't need these these worldly rights from the state. Is that is that sort of what the idea is? Yeah, I think the idea of, of messianic time and apocalyptic politics comes into conversation a bit more with the Anabaptists. But in the example of the Franciscans, I think it's important here to talk about um, another concept in Agamben's work that I haven't talked through yet, this idea of homo soccer or the figure in bare life. For Agamben, this is kind of the figure that represents the state of exception. Um, so it's a life that has been stripped of the protections of the law, but is still in this exclusively inclusive relationship. Um, so it's not the pre-political life, but it's rather a life that has been stripped from the law, where the law is enforced without significance. And so as an example of this, we can think of like stateless refugees, um, those who have been stripped of their rights of citizenship and the protection that that brings and so they're kind of in this place outside the law, but at the same time are still in relationship to states through the violence that they face because they lack this protection. Agamben is seeing that the figure of homo soccer is not just a negative space, but also an area of positive creation where we can look to to learn something. So these communities that are in this state of exception, the state of bare life, they still have a life there, and it's a life that is not attached to the same kinds of law. And so what can we actually learn from that? And maybe is there a way to voluntarily embody that in ways that look like solidarity and a rethinking of community? So for the Franciscans, as you said, they came out of the monastic movement, which is part of the Christian tradition, mostly within um, the Catholic church, where within a religious order, a community comes together around a rule of life. And so each monastic group has its own rule of life, and that's kind of what differentiates them from each other. 
Um, and for the Franciscans specifically, they not only took this vow of poverty, like you said, but also a vow of juridical poverty where they gave up any kind of ownership rights over property. And so they only used that which they needed to survive. There was no right to ownership there. Agamemnon calls this a theory of use where they were using the world around them without any relationship to the law. And so I think Agamemnon posits this community is kind of an example of possibly taking the voluntary place of homo soccer. And what is the kind of life that the Franciscans tried to create for themselves outside of the law here? And Agamemnon talks about form of life hyphenated, which is a life that's matched so closely to its form that it's indistinguishable from it. So he says that the Franciscans, rather than applying the rule of law to their lives, they actually applied their life to the communal rule. And so this rule and their life was so indistinguishable from one another that there was no need to add laws on top of that to stabilize it or enforce it. Um, And it was, in fact, just the form of life that bound the community together. And again, although he says that they ultimately failed because there was still this relationship to the larger legal structure of the church, I think there's something really important to be learned there, even if it's a more ephemeral example. To me, this has always been kind of a peculiar opposition, because when you look at monastic orders, there are so many um, sort of like monastic rules and things that they have to follow. So just sort of like on the face of it, this seems like very similar to a rule of law being applied to their life. But you say that in some way, like just their everyday existence is so closely tied with the life that they're living or the the rules, you know, that they're following. They're like giving their lives over to the rules. So maybe could you just say a little bit about, you know, what that difference is and we can just kind of kind of draw that out a little bit. From how I can understand it, I think that it's this idea of the removal or the revocation of rights that's really the important piece here. Um, And so the rule of life bound them together, but not in a way that it needed to be enforced or the violence of that needed to be coerced over the community because they had all given up any type of right. So their their life was committed to one another and to the community um, and was bound only by necessity and use. And I think it relates here to the idea of the possibility of, of Jesus's life itself being the rule of their lives together. And so rather than, than the idea of, of an outside law creating order within the community and enforcing that, it's rather the reality of this lived experience that simply creates the way that the community is ordered. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's it's kind of like the the form of their communal life comes from the community itself and not from anything external to it. Yeah, and that form is the rule rather than the rule being what dictates what their lives look like. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, show producer Nick Bergen speaks with Katrina Kniss about the Anabaptist tradition and its practices. The Anabaptists emerged during the Protestant Reformation and the German Peasants' Revolt, and they believed the kingdom of God was here and now, or that the second coming of Christ was imminent. This led the Anabaptists to form communal ways of living that emphasized mutual aid, cooperation, nonviolence, and living in harmony with each other without dogma or creed. 
And though I've repented, I'm still tempted, I admit But it's not what bearing witness is Maybe we can talk a little bit now about the Anabaptist tradition Because, um, you know, that's, a, that's an example coming from the Christian anarchist tradition, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I don't think Agamben ever talks about the Anabaptists. Um, so could you maybe just talk a little bit about that? And, you know, you said that their practice is very closely related to um, messianic theology, and maybe you can touch on that a little bit and how their communal experiments differ from the Franciscans in any way, if they do. So, yes, I have been arguing that the Anabaptists are part of the Christian anarchist tradition, And there aren't really any rules about who is a Christian anarchist and who isn't. I'd say most of the thinkers that that are associated with Christian anarchism wouldn't even call themselves that. Um, It's more of this understanding of a political ramification of the gospel. And so in the way that I see the Anabaptist tradition functioning, especially the early movement, I find it helpful to look at it through a Christian anarchist lens. So the Anabaptist tradition emerged during the time of the Protestant Reformation, and in a subset of that, which scholars call the Radical Reformation. And so their ideas of this movement were kind of in response, not only to the Catholic Church, but also to Luther's movement. And it was also really bound up in the time of the German Peasants' Revolt, when there was a lot of yeah, rebellions coming from the peasant class against their economic conditions at that time. Um, and so Thomas Munzer is, is one famous um, Anabaptist that was very much involved with the Peasants' Revolt and also the early parts of the Anabaptist movement. This is where the idea of Messianism becomes really important um, because they believed that they were living in an apocalyptic, apocalyptic time where the kingdom of God is available here and now. And so that leads to a lot more, a lot more of a commitment to radical action um, without concern about the consequences around that. And so it's kind of hard at times to define what is part of the Anabaptist movement and what isn't, because it it wasn't necessarily bound together by a certain creed or doctrine, but rather um, each community kind of defined its own confession of faith and what that looked like for them. And so some communities, depending on their context, some were involved in this idea of messianic time by seeing the kingdom of God as already there and available in the here and now and living into that within their communities in a way of embodying more of the nonviolent aspects, whereas others saw the second coming of Jesus as imminent and that really affected the way that they um, engaged in politics and, and in the conflicts going on at that time. So it's very diverse, but I think one thing that draws the tradition together is a fundamentalist reading of scripture, especially around the example of the early church. And so there's an emphasis on communal living and mutual aid where everything is shared in common and a commitment to a fundamental reading of, of Jesus's life and that commitment to nonviolence in most cases. Um, also a believer's church and believer's baptism were two of the most important aspects of this movement. And also the ones that got them into the most trouble with the powers at the time so this idea of an adult baptism was very radical and was part of what um, caused persecution against this movement because at the time the church and the state were so closely linked that baptism as an infant was really used as a form of um, accounting for citizenship and a way to account for and control 
the population. Um, so the idea of of choosing to have faith and choosing to be baptized as an adult as an adult was really eroding this this power that the state had over the church and the ways that it functioned. So an interesting part of this community as well is is how they were formed together as a community and, and what that rule of life looked like without dogma and creeds. Um, and so there was this concept of the ban or shunning where those who were not in line with the will of the community would be asked to leave for a certain amount of time and then could be brought back in after um, reparations and reconciliation were made. And so I, I see this as a really interesting example of a way that in some ways this ban can kind of look like the sovereign ban, but when it's imagined in a more egalitarian way where the where the choice to be a part of the community is truly voluntary, it's more of a of a commitment to right relationship within the community and it's a way of of enforcing that with accountability as well. And it seems like that idea of a ban or like shunning is um especially with uh you know just having it kind of framed around you leave for a period of time and then you come back and rejoin the community once reconciliations are made it it seems like in stark contrast to um you know putting people in prisons or something it seems like a lot more on like reparative justice trend than um carceral punishment or anything like that do you think that's the case yeah absolutely and i think that's why it's so interesting looking within the Anabaptist tradition to kind of look at the ways that we have already had these frameworks around what the violence of the state is. And we've kind of always had this framework that prisons are violent and the military is violent and police are violent and we are not supposed to be a part of those systems as Christians. And so Anabaptists for a long time have been really involved in restorative justice movements. And so I think it's an interesting time to think about the ways that Anabaptist church is already there in some ways, but not talking about it in explicitly political terms. Um, and so a lot of my desire with, with this work and the way that it's functioned in my own life is kind of renew my understandings of my faith and the, and the impact that it actually has for the world and, and where we can join in the movements that are already happening. It's time for another break. This is Level With Yourself by David Bazan off his 2011 album, Strange Negotiations. You'll hear more from Katrina Kniss on Christian anarchism when we return.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Today, Katrina Kniss joins us to discuss Christian anarchism and the work of philosopher and political theologian Giorgio Agamben. In this segment, Interchange producer Nick Bergen speaks with Katrina Kniss on the possibilities the Anabaptist and Franciscan traditions can offer the George Floyd uprising and the movements to defund and abolish the police. The work of Giorgio Agamben looks to the most marginalized people to find the state of exception, the location where bare life has stripped people of state-granted rights. Katrina Kniss reminds us that where there's bare life, there are already existing forms of mutual aid and community care that we should understand and uplift, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls life-affirming alternatives to police violence and the state. wanted to talk about the, um, you know, not necessarily prison and the but um, something that's really been in the news a lot this year is um, the uh, the uprising that occurred after the murder of George Floyd and um, sort of the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement, which, um, you know, is focused on um, sort of the least radical instances in police reform and the more radical instances police defunding or abolition. And um, I think like one of the most common criticisms I've heard to people calling for, for example, police abolition is that they say, what's the alternative? Like, what are we going to do if there's crime or there's an emergency? You know, it seems like the Anabaptists and the Franciscans, these ideas that you're working with are posing some sort of alternative where it's, um, you know, it's an idea of living in a community without needing these sort of like institutions that are detached from the community to be governing it and managing it and imposing violence on it, like as the police do. So I'm just wondering, like, what you think um, the movements that we're seeing today can learn from these traditions, like, especially given that um, the movement has been largely secular and these communities are, are, you know, their faith is a very big part of what they're doing. So do you think they can be taken as a model or maybe there's just a few aspects of what they're doing that, um, you know, people could learn from to learn to, to build strong communities. Do you have any ideas about that? It's important to think here about the necessity of like a diversity of forms and a diversity of ideas in our movements. And so I think there are many paths to understanding the the necessity of abolition and, both the Gottman and Christian anarchist tradition each have their areas of weaknesses, obviously, but the more interdisciplinary we are, I think the more we might be able to glean from those conversations. Something I find really interesting in Gottman's thought is this move of looking to the most marginalized. And so looking to the way that our, our society functions now and where is the state of exception functioning within our society and who are those that are being placed into that space of of bare life and exception and then what are the forms of survival and community care that are already taking place there that we can learn from and uplift so within american society today i absolutely believe that applies to our carceral system and in some ways the police have this function of sovereign power where they are able to decide when the law is enforced and when it's not and they are outside of their power outside of that that is never held accountable. And so within Agumman's ideas, I think it points to this ability to live as if the police do not exist, even though they still do. And 
looking at the forms of life and community that are already here and present and maybe just rethinking them in a new way, which I think relates to the idea that Ruth Wilson Gilmore brings forth of creating life-affirming alternatives to the death-dealing systems of, of the carceral state. And I think in the same way, yeah, Anabaptists can can enter this conversation from looking at our own history of the ways that we've tried to distance ourselves from the state, but always with this question of not becoming too comfortable in tradition and too detached from those roots and the ways that um, the movement began. But what are those violent parts of the state that we need to reject today um, in the ways that we're living as a church? And I think we have such a rich history to draw on of our journey of lessening our reliance on the state, living in somewhat isolated communities, focusing on conflict resolution and peace building, on community development, mutual aid, emphasis on sustainability and creation care, and like I said earlier, restorative justice initiatives. Yeah, and so I think it's just important here to think about where the entry points are in different communities um, and not necessarily saying that one way or one vision needs to be lifted up over another, but the importance of finding entry points from, from many different places. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Interchange producer Nick Bergen is speaking with Katrina Kniss about Christian anarchism and experiments in community care in the wake of the George Floyd uprising. Kniss describes an occupation in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where organizers were able to support each other through free meals and challenge carceral logic together with community accountability and political education. Each historical moment, Kniss argues, manifests changing circumstances and new ways of organizing together and creating community and connection. No, I've repented, I'm still tempted, I admit, but it's not what bearing witness Those community structures that give people the support they need outside of the police and carceral institutions, those are you know, already there in lots of different ways, and they're just something that needs to be built up. Yeah, absolutely. I think about the examples that we've seen all across the country about autonomous zones coming forward and, and different kinds of occupations and the ways that, that these spaces can really serve as examples and experiments of, of what areas outside of the, of the police can look like. And those have also all been fairly ephemeral experiments as well, um, but I think have, have a lot to teach us. Even here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I'm located this summer, there was um, a movement of occupation in a, in a public park downtown where activists held space for 12 hours a day for 49 days straight in search of justice um, for John Neville, who was murdered by Forsyth County detention officers. And this occupation was um, in, in support of certain demands that they had. And those demands were met, which just shows an incredible amount of, of power within the community when we come together. But it was also this occupied space where the community was able to start rethinking some of our ingrained ideas. There were activists that came together who've been working in all different kinds of spaces around the city who created new relationships. Um, Anyone who was in the area could come and walk by and there were free meals being given out. And it was a space that was free from this kind of carceral thinking and free from policing and really showed examples of of how community accountability can happen. There were opportunities for political education and art and all of these things. And so I think those moments are so transformative for a community when we allow ourselves to think what this could look like differently. 
Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, that, that's also something I wanted to talk about because here in Bloomington, we had an occupation that lasted, uh, it was about 10 days, um, 24-7, and it was a, you know, it was a safe place where um, people without homes could come and sleep and, um, you know, not worry about being harassed by the police, which is something that um, has happened quite a bit in Bloomington and also a place where people can come get food. Um, so just this idea of like bringing people together and forming community bonds just makes total sense to me. But I also want to talk about, um, you know, you did mention that lots of these experiments around the U.S. were very ephemeral and, um, you know, just in my experience um, here, like we had um, people showing up, trying to agitate, trying to, you know, mess around with the occupation, there was a, a paranoia that there were undercover police around. So that um, sowed a lot of distrust, I feel like, at certain times. And it seems like, you know, a lot of people have been struggling with that. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, how do people move beyond that? Or, um, you know, especially like maybe this is one difference between like Anabaptists or like monastic orders is that, you know, in those situations, everybody has known each other for a really long time. So I'm just wondering if you if you have any thoughts on like what it means to kind of be setting up like a, a strong community space kind of, um, you know, on the fly where a lot of people are meeting each other. And, um, you know, it's a big challenge. So do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a fascinating question that I think is just really looking at an organizing perspective, which I definitely don't have as, as much experience with as some. Um, but I think you're right. In the, in the sense that these more religious orders that I have been talking about also function in a, with a certain level of, of privilege, um, whereas the Anabaptist movement today, the Amish aren't being persecuted by the state and be, for their isolation and those kinds of ideas. It looks really different in, in each historical moment in the way that that manifests, um, which is why I think it's so important to constantly be rethinking our ideas of community and even though those early stages of community might be the hardest, I also think that's where there's the most potential. And the fact that they're ephemeral, I don't think discounts them at all because it's showing a way of recreating community over and over again in a way that isn't static and is always in tune with the needs of the community and and what's happening at that moment. And that kind of community needs to be able to respond to changing circumstances and all of that and to be able to bring in new people as as they're interested um so yeah i think it's really important that those communities also aren't um, isolated from from the rest of the context that they're taking part in um and that there have been lots of organizers and activists who have been doing this work for a very long time um and so I think it's important that, yeah, all of this is in relationships of accountability and and connection to, to broader things that are going on. It's time for our final break. This is Both Hands off of David Bazan's 2018 album, Blanco. Stay tuned for more from Katrina Fniss on Christian anarchism when we return.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, Nick Bergen and Katrina Kniss return to the question of anarchism in Christian anarchism. Kniss breaks down the etymology of anarchy and suggests that the work of Christian anarchism is to build a world that does not rely on the violence of the state. Black, queer, and feminist liberation theologies abound, and each takes as its starting point the violence facing the oppressed and the possibility for a world beyond the violence of sovereignty. Yeah, another thing I that I was thinking about when I was reading your work was just um, the idea of just the term Christian anarchism that might strike a lot of people as a surprise. And like uh, anarchism is such a loaded term nowadays. Like you hear, you know, Donald Trump tweeting about how anarchists are ruining the peaceful Black Lives Matter protests and stuff. But then, you know, when when you sort of read Christian anarchist thinkers, you find that it's almost like talking about like a completely different thing. So do you think that that, you know, the word anarchy is um, something that that can be salvaged and is useful for talking about these sorts of things? Or do you think it's um, it's sort of been so like politicized and in the wrong way that it's it no longer has any, um, you know, any it's sort of like outgrown its use? Well, I don't see anarchism as a dirty word, period, um, even if yeah, some folks would see it that way. Um, but it's really just going back to the root of what that word means, um, archy as in a structure of power, and so anarchy as against these structures of power. Yeah, it's interesting because Christian anarchists aren't necessarily anti-archy, but rather like pro the archy of God. And so it opens up an interesting conversation about if there's this, even this need for hierarchy uh, within Christian anarchist theology and and thought. Um, But it really is coming from, from a different perspective. And um, in my experience with talking about these kinds of ideas in Anabaptist spaces and Mennonite spaces, um, there is definitely a kind of misunderstanding of, or a rejection, um, immediate rejection of ideas when that word anarchism is attached to it. But I think it helps to to talk through what that actually means and how that functions within theology. And I think it's already so in line with a lot of the conversations that we've been having for so long that it might be a little scary, but maybe scary and uncomfortable is good. And that needs to be brought into those spaces. What, what kinds of conversations? Um, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, like trying to bring in conversations of how Anabaptists should engage with the political system. I think there's still a lot of attachment to the idea of of the state as as God ordained, and so we don't necessarily need to mess with that or work against it um, because God has like kept it there to be able to order the world, and so it's there because the world is still imperfect, and in a perfect world there would be no government, but we live in a fallen and perfect world. And so the government needs to be there as a way to create order for non-Christians. Um, it's kind of the understanding and exegesis people give of, of Romans 13, um, which is a passage which talks about the powers that be as ordained by God. And so it's difficult sometimes entering into those conversations because I will be on the same page with folks that 
yes, the government is inherently violent. Yes, Christians should not be a part of upholding these violent systems, but we should also not really do anything that would um, be in a space of resisting against that. And so that's why I think it's important to understand that this idea of non-resistance isn't apolitical, but that it has actual political implications um, and to be willing to imagine what those are in today's world and to step into those alongside folks that have already been doing that work for a long time. I just wonder um, also, like, I feel like we've, we've talked about so many very interesting and wonderful traditions um, in Christianity. And it just makes me think like in a lot of the political movements we've seen this year, um, Christian ideas definitely have played a part. Like I've seen that sometimes, but it's certainly not the most like major part. And um, I just wonder like what you think um, or, or what you envision like the opportunity that there is in these social movements for Christians. So I do want to acknowledge, like you said, that this is not a conversation at all foreign to Christianity as a whole. And when we talk about Christianity, it's not one singular Christianity, but many Christianities. Um, And there's long traditions for as long as Christianity has been around of different theologies of liberation and Black liberation theology, um, Latin American liberation theology, womanist and mujerista theologies, um, queer theology, all of these ideas that are are rooted in in liberation of, of the oppressed. And so those movements have already had a, and continue to have a very um, important impact on Christian spaces and on our political involvements and on what movements look like in general. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Interchange producer Nick Bergen is speaking with Katrina Kniss about the role that Christian anarchism can play in movements against state violence and toward the abolition of police and prisons. Kniss suggests that online communities have given Christian anarchists space to meet each other and find entry points into abolitionist work. And though I've repented, I'm still tempted, I admit, but it's not what bearing I can only speak from my own context. And so I do think there's so much more space for those who grew up with a theology similar to my own um, to begin to asking some of these questions about the political ramifications of that. Um, If I can, I would just love to lift up some spaces that have been um, influential for myself. Um, I think I first came across the term Christian anarchism from Mark Van Steenwijk, um, who was one of the co-founders of the group Jesus Radicals. I got to see him speak at um, Mennonite Church USA convention when I was in high school and um, have followed his work since. And Jesus Radicals is a really awesome space um, that's online and focuses on um, the intersection of anarchism and Christianity. And they have um, a podcast and now a literary journal and just like a really great space for education and resources. And earlier this summer, the Institute for Christian Socialism um, created a, a webinar about the overlaps of Christianity and abolition. And from that, I was introduced to a Slack group for Christian abolitionists. And that has been a really beautiful space where I've seen folks sharing resources and their own stories, whether they're new to the idea of abolition um, or have been organizing for a long time um, of just that space that sometimes there is a block of, of the geographical distance um, 
but during, especially during this time of pandemic, I think there's a, a lot of ability to create online community around these ideas. Um, and I think that's important for myself and, and for others who are committed to Christian spaces as well as movement spaces, because I think it can sometimes be a bit isolating to be a very political person in Christian spaces and to be a religious person in movement spaces. Um, and so it's important to kind of realize that all of our entryways into that kind of work are, are valid and important and to um, allow ourselves to continue to build up our ideas around that. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of space out there for the conversation to continue growing around the intersections of Christianity and radical politics. I think we're getting pretty close to the end of our time, but um, really quick, I'm just interested. I know that you, this um, sort of paper you wrote, uh, you wrote this a couple years ago and um, you're back as a graduate student in divinity school. So can you just say a little bit about what your tell us a little bit about your interests in grad school and what you're working on right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this article that was published was actually part of my senior thesis in undergrad. And um, I brought in um, conversations around other fields of thought that decenter the state um, and put it in conversation, put Christian anarchism in conversation um, with the Italian autonomia movement, as well as Afro-pessimism and some parts of the Black radical tradition. So those are really the ideas that have animated me and have shaped a lot of what I'm thinking about in the world. Um, yeah, and I think in the years since I graduated, I have kind of been rethinking my relationship to academia, but still finding a lot of a lot of importance there, at least in my own journey, in my own life. I'm actually in a dual degree program at Wake Forest with the Divinity School and the Law School, and um, my eventual goal is to work somewhere in public interest law and in movement lawyering. But there's still a lot of questions that I want to be able to delve deeper into the side of what faith-based organizing looks like um, and to have greater language and context around these ideas, because I think I have a much more robust understanding of certain political meanings and ideas rather than theology. And so I'm trying to kind of balance those two in my own understandings about the world too. our show this is i heard the bells on christmas day off david bazan's 2016 album dark sacred night i'm your host brady heberlin nick bergen and i produced the show together doug storm edited and mixed the show and Cade young is executive producer you can catch interchange every tuesday at 6 p.m on wfhb online at wfhb.org or wherever you subscribe to podcasts thanks for listening to interchange on your volunteer run radio station wfhb Stay tuned because Jazz Menagerie is up next. I thought how the day had come the bell frees up.